Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Chotir Gamaya Mrityorma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Om Lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness to light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om Peace, Peace, Peace be unto us all. Good morning and hi out there. Welcome to the Vedanta Temple in Santa Barbara. Welcome. It's a very warm May morning. And uh, welcome one day. We hope you can visit in person. Well, you know, May is such a splendid month. Gotta love May. And we're in it right now. Shakespeare called it the merry month of May because the birds are singing and the flowers are blooming and the trees and everything is out in great profusion. Everything's blossoming and blooming and thick with life. And it's such a glorious time. In the Catholic world, May is Mary's month. They call it Lady Month. The entire month beginning from May 1st is dedicated to Mary. And May is sacred for another reason, because it's in May that we have Buddha Purnima, or the thrice-blessed day of Buddha. And this is the day of Buddha's birth, his, the day of his enlightenment, and also his Maha Nirvana, the, um, the, the, his final release from transmigration. It's also called Vaishak Purnima, because in the Indian calendar, April, May is called Vaishak. So it's, it's a very sacred time, and even though we're not Buddhist, Vedanta and Buddhism are pr- pretty darn close in many ways, so and it's a, a very important day for, for everybody because Buddha's life is a huge inspiration. His life and teachings are a huge inspiration for us all. Swami Vivekananda said, All my life I've been very fond of Buddha. I have more veneration for him than for any other. That boldness, that fearlessness, and that tremendous love. Well, if there's something we need all right now, it's going to be that boldness, that fearlessness, and that tremendous love. That's going to get us through this thing. You know, Buddha's very popular in the West now. It's just amazing. You you see uh, quotations of him on the Internet that he didn't say at all, but, you know, it sounds good to have Buddha say it. They've got statues of him everywhere. There's big and small plastic granite you can, there's things you can put on your Buddha for the dashboard, Buddha around your mirror. You can have Buddha on a shelf. You can have him as a huge stone decoration in your garden. And people often think of Buddha as being quite jolly, this big fat guy with a big fat laugh. And they conflate him with the Chinese monk Hotoi, who was a big jolly fellow that you worship uh, for wealth and prosperity, which was, you know, not really Buddha's gig. The real Buddha was an aristocratic prince who was born about 500 BCE. And he was born in the northeast, what's now, what's now Nepal, in Lumbini. And his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was a, 
a happy young prince. And at the age of 16, he was married to Yashodara, and they had a son, Rahula. And they all lived in beauty and luxury and comfort in the palace and all the gardens surrounding the palace. And it was a beautiful life. And Siddhartha's father made sure that he never saw any unpleasantness. He made sure that nothing that he saw or experienced would be anything else apart from comfort, joy, and beauty. Well, one beautiful morning, maybe like this morning, he asked um, Siddhartha asked his charioteer Chana, "Take me outside the gates of the city. Let you know. Let's go sightseeing." And so they went sightseeing. But then his life profoundly changed, and so did ours. Because for the first time in his life, Buddha experienced the reality of life. He had been protected from it before. So he first saw an old man, then he saw a sick person, and then he saw a corpse. And he was deeply shaken by what he saw. When he asked his charioteer about the old man, Chana said that aging was something that happened to all beings. Well, of course, unless they died earlier, they were, they were going to age. And when he asked Chana about the sick person, Chana said, you know, he said, why is this person laying like that? What's wrong? And he said, he's sick. All beings are subjected to disease and pain. And finally, Siddhartha saw a corpse. And he asked Chana, what is that? And Chana said, that is a corpse. That's a dead person. Death is an inevitable end to every life, to all beings. Every being dies. Now, these were, for Buddha, they were three absolutely devastating sights. And then he saw a monk walking. He saw a man in, dressed in orange walking. And he said, Chana, why is this man wearing that? And he said, oh, he's a mendicant. He's a monk. Why is he dressed like that? He's performing austerity so he can be released from the sufferings that have to go with birth, death and rebirth. He's, he's escaping samsara. All these sights filled Siddhartha's mind, and he couldn't, he couldn't just throw them out of his mind. He couldn't ignore them. And that evening when he came home, his father had already arranged a big concert, a big performance of dancing girls for him. But you know what? He was just not in the mood for that. So he was sitting there and just like, this is not okay. And eventually he went to his quarters and stayed there for a while, and his mind was going on and on. And then he went back to the performance hall, and he saw the dancing girls just strewn around. And he went, you oh, know, this is not okay. This is not okay. So he went to his sleeping wife, Yashodara, and he kissed her in her sleep, and he kissed his son, Rahula, and he left the palace forever. And he, he decided, he made a resolve, that he was going to search for the end of suffering for all beings. And he began to lead an ascetic life. What does this have to do with us? Because it's like it was really nice of him to really care about all beings and to lead an ascetic life. But you know what? That was like uh, 2,700 2, years ago. I don't, it's not really applicable. Well, because he encountered old age, sickness, and death. That's why, ring a bell? Ring a familiar note anywhere? You know, we read about it, we see it, we encounter it, we know it's there, but we don't like it, and so we ignore it. We just put our head in the sand and say, uh, 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 
Ah, let's not, let's just not even go there. I don't want to think negative thoughts. You know, do you know there are people out there who don't believe that COVID exists? This totally just blows my mind. It just, it, 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 it kills me. It's like, they think it's hyped up by the press or it's a plot of our government or a plot of the Chinese or whatever it may be. It's like, it's very hard. When uh, I have a friend that's been cremated today, in fact, who had COVID. And we lost, um, our, uh, we have an American Swami last month. So it's hard to have patience when people don't have the courage or the unselfishness to recognize there's a pandemic and we all have to be responsible. We all have to work with this together. We're all in it together. Siddhartha was absolutely fearless. He was going to go there. Other people don't go there. He's going to go there. He didn't shirk or shrink from what he saw. And he took it to the end possibility, not just like, uh-oh, I better lock the door. It was all to the whole end of what his, the mind could bring him. And he wasn't trying to save his own skin because his heart broke for the sufferings of others. When Siddhartha saw death, he didn't think, oh, I'm going to perform some austerities so I can live a longer life or maybe I can gain immortality because he realized that all beings died and all beings were suffering and he cared very much about that. So that's why it's the Buddha and us. Because Siddhartha suddenly became aware of the human condition, or more correctly, the condition of all embodied beings. He realized it. And he wanted to find an end to it, to end the sufferings of all beings. So for six years, he practiced intense meditation with, with some renowned Hindu teachers, practiced yoga, he practiced also, he wasn't, felt like he wasn't getting there, so he practiced severe fasting, and then more fasting, and more, until finally he was crossing a river and he fainted from lack of nutrition. And he was brought back to life by a very kind woman who fed him a little pious. Pious has been sacred ever since. So he, he and then he realized, like, this is not working. This is absolutely not working. He realized that excessive austerity is not the path to enlightenment. We have to follow the middle path. The body isn't to be tortured, but it isn't to be pampered either. It's a vehicle to be used. As the Bhagavad Gita says, yoga is not for one who fasts excessively or for one who keeps exaggerating vigils. It's realized, a Siddhartha realized that all these hard austerities were not going to give him enlightenment. So he sat down under the Bodhi tree in what is now called the immovable spot. And he said, and let this body drop off. I am not leaving this spot until I attain enlightenment. I'm not budging. And so he sat there for 49 days. What was he doing while he was sitting there for 49 days? Well, he was involved in he was doing very, very deep meditation along with extremely close, rigorous reasoning. What we would call Raja Yoga and Jnana Yoga. He did that for 49 days. And during this time, he was tempted by the demon Mara, just as Jesus was tempted by the devil. He was tempted by all sorts of enjoyments and all sorts of things. 
And like Jesus, he wasn't swayed. He didn't give up. He didn't move from his seat. He kept on pushing. He kept on going until finally he attained nirvana, complete release, complete freedom from the bonds of birth and death and rebirth, complete freedom from desire, complete freedom from egotism and all that that implies. And when he came out, his face shone with joy and peace and tranquility. And so from then on, when people saw him, they weren't, they weren't saying, who are you? They were going, what are you? What are you? Are you a God? No. Are, are you an angel? No. Are you a saint? No. What are you? I'm awakened. Which is how he got the name the Buddha, the awakened one. <clears throat> he refused all attempts to divinize himself because he said he was a man and any man could attain what he attained. If they had that followed that path that he sets forth for us and he had a burning desire to be free, to be free from these bonds of samsara. So for the next 45 years until he was 80, he traveled on foot all throughout North, Northeast India, spreading the message of the Four Noble Truths. So I decided to run an experiment on, on my Facebook page because I thought, okay, you know, we've, we've heard about the Four Noble Truths, but how, what do people think the Four Noble Truths are? So I put it on my Facebook page. I said, okay, do me a favor, you guys. Please tell me what you think the Four Noble Truths are. Don't cheat. Don't look it up. I know what they are. Um, don't look at anybody else's answers. I want to know what you think about the Four Noble Truths. And so the first answer I got was from an old friend who's a professor of religious studies. So, of course, he nailed it and explained it very eloquently and beautifully. But I kind of wanted to know what the non-professionals, the people who don't think about religion, what do they, you know, or don't spend their lives studying it, what do they think? I wish I could read you all the responses because I have never enjoyed Facebook like I loved this. Like all the responses were so unique. Some were funny. Some, and they were all enjoyable and some were super, super thoughtful, insightful, like they'd really, it was obvious that they had really kind of thrashed it out inside themselves and it implied it in their lives. They, they'd applied it in their lives. It was just amazing. So shout out uh, Swami Jitananda in Sao Paulo and Pedro in Rio. It, uh, very long, amazing, thoughtful answers that were like, wow, this is great. This is really great. And it was like they weren't copying it from anyone. They just, it had come up from their own experience in their own hearts. So Betsy gives us her version of the noble truths. Compassion. Second one is compassion. The third noble truth is compassion. And you got it for the fourth noble truth, compassion. Gilberto in Brazil said, first, we are born. Second, we mess up. Third, we get second old. Fourth, we die. Jinx wrote, we do good and love people and things. Diane, a longtime devotee, wrote, first noble truth, there's suffering. Second is something. Third one is something. And the fourth one is um, non-attachment eases suffering. A young, close devotee, who I suspect wrote what most people actually think, said, she wrote, okay, a shot in the dark here. Kindness, humility, truth, compassion? 
compassion. Another close friend who's a sixth grade teacher nailed it. She said, first, all life is conditioned by suffering. Second, suffering is caused by desire, dukkha. Third, to end suffering, we must remove our attachments. Fourth, to do this, we follow the eightfold path. And then she concluded, if I can't do this, then I am not a sixth grade teacher. <laughs> Thank you for that. One of my favorites was written by one of our dear friends here, and she's actually a disciple of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. She said the Four Noble Truths. First, all life is suffering. Second, there is a way to be free from this suffering. Third, that is the Eightfold Path. Fourth, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. So many of them were so great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Buddha traveled widely on foot and taught everywhere these four noble truths. Why didn't he just stay and enjoy the bliss of nirvana? It, it would be so intoxicating. Because he didn't care about his own personal salvation, about his own personal joy. He wanted to remove the sufferings of all beings, and his heart bled for others. He was so immensely compassionate. When you see images of Buddha, you see these enormous long earlobes. That's a sign of compassion. When you see those, don't think like, oh God, he had deformity. No, to show his immense compassion. So what are these four noble truths and how do they apply to us? Okay, the first noble truth is always the deal breaker, 100% of the time. And it's the truth of suffering. This is the truth that absolutely nobody wants to hear. They say, excuse me, I'm going to go someplace else. Um, I want to hear something cheerful, something that's a little more upbeat, something that makes me feel good. Okay, ciao, baby. Uh, no problem, go ahead, go for it. See if that helps with samsara. Have all the fun you want. It's okay. We've all done it again and again and again and again and again. The problem with the truth of suffering is that nobody wants to believe it, and certainly nobody wants to hear about it. They say, yeah, there is suffering, but there's so much joy. There's so much joy in the world, and that is so true. But the problem is it's temporary. All joy is temporary. We have a joy, and then even while they're in minutes, we're in the middle of enjoying that joy, it's like, oh, this is, this is going to run out. This isn't going to last forever. Oh, and then there's that kind of wistfulness. No, this doesn't last forever. It's like the blossoms on the trees, like, oh, they're, they're going to fall off. They're going to die. They're doing it right now. Oh, it's... So then we have to find something else to fill this emptiness in our hearts. So we have this desire going, oh, this will give me joy. This will give me joy. This, maybe more of this, some of this, a different part of this, a different version of this. This will bring me joy. So in order to have this joy... This fire of desire is like right under our feet the whole time, just burning there. And that is painful. So the Buddha had an extremely analytical mind, and so he parses the truth of suffering into six parts. He goes into this whole analysis about why it's the truth of suffering. First, the pain of birth. You know, we're so happy when a baby is born. You know, it's hard on the mom, obviously, ow. But you know, it's hard on the baby, too. That baby was in there in this amniotic sac, so nice. It was so warm and comfy and 
protected from everything in the world, then you got to go through this painful birth process. And when you come out, you're screaming and crying for good reason. Because we're going out into the cold, cruel world. And it's cold and cruel in a million different ways we haven't begun to think about. We were so comfortable, and now we're released to the mercy of all those external elements. Second, the pain of sickness. Do I really need to remind you about COVID? Okay, some people have a mild case, no big deal. Some people don't even know they have it. Many, it's agonizing. Agonizing for many, it's devastating. And of course, for many, it's fatal. But, you know, we will conquer COVID. Absolutely, we will. Like, we we're, human beings are amazing. God bless all you medical workers and scientists. God bless you. We will get through this. We will conquer it. But we've got plenty of other sickness to address, to deal with. What about cancer? What about Alzheimer's? What about a stroke? What about mental illness? What pain there is in a life of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or paranoid or paranoid schizophrenia? What a torture. You know, even poison oak is misery. But sickness is pain, and pain and sickness will come together. We're terrified of COVID because it's so contagious and we can't see it. Fear is painful. Living in fear is a very painful place to be. And then there's the pain of getting old. Oh, no, I'm not getting old. It's those other people at my high school reunion. They're the ones that are getting old. I'm looking great. When I see, I can't even recognize them. It's like, God, she's gained weight. Oh, my God, he must have been sick. Oh, okay, okay. I don't, who is that? No. Other people are getting old, not me. Because um, we can have all the hair dye we want, all the Botox, all the, all the facials, all the facelifts, our personal trainers, our special diets, our, you know, whatever we're going to do. And maybe we can get to look 20 years younger. That's great. 20 years younger than what we really are. <laughs> it's all a fraud. It's all a fraud, isn't it? Yep, we undergo this charade because we're afraid of getting old. Otherwise, we wouldn't go to such trouble and expense for it. We're afraid of getting old. Apart from the obvious expense, the obvious problem of aging that everything hurts, things don't work well anymore, can't see as well, can't hear as well, can't remember as well, don't have the strength I used to have or, or the endurance I used to have. Even more than that, it's the fear of being set aside, the fear of being put out to pasture, the fear of not being needed, the fear of being considered useless. Someone may come and talk to you, maybe not. And of course, no one ever thinks they're going to be that doddering, drooling person in the corner in a wheelchair. No one ever goes there. But we're just one stroke away, one Alzheimer's diagnosis away, a few TIAs away, and there we are. The Buddha was utterly fearless in his ability to look at life squarely in the face and say, aging is suffering. It is suffering. Getting old is painful. No way around it. Death is painful. Ah, you know what? If it weren't, we wouldn't be so afraid of it. Even ants will run away from their doom. What to speak of us? 
The pain and fear of aging is just the trailer for the big show, and that is the fear of death. We may think we have no fear of death, but when, it actually think, when we actually think that it may just happen, like now, it's all our, our bravado kind of evaporates. When I was a teenager, I was an ardent devotee of Ramakrishna and Holy Mother, and I bravely said, I don't care if I die. I will only go to the Lord sooner until I actually got a really, really bad case of the Hong Kong flu. I was so sick, I fell unconscious, and I could feel my body being pulled away by the arms. And I kept trying to say, I'm okay, I'm okay, but I couldn't. I could not come up. I ended up on the hospital, and it was, it was, a, it was a, a real learning experience. It was a very humbling experience. And I told my teacher, Swami Prabhavananda, a few weeks after this all happened, and he smiled and said, yes, always meditate with a sword of Yama above your head, the, the, the god of death. Yeah, that made, a, that, made a, that made an impression. Fifth, the pain of being tied to something we dislike. Ouch, God, that hurts. You know, you can see what an incredible psychologist this man was, the Buddha. Because we're often put into situations where we're tied to something that we can't get rid of. We have to be there. We might be tied into a relationship that we're just stuck with. It might be a parent. It might be a sibling. It might be a child. That it is a very painful situation, but we cannot escape this relationship. It's like an albatross around our neck. We've got it. It's there. We have to deal with it, and we dislike it. It might be a boss. We need that boss. But it's really every day. It's like, oh, God. And even when we go home at night, we take it home with us. God, how God. We're a coworker. It might be an illness that we have that we're just stuck with. It might be a lifelong situation that leaves us with a physical disability that makes us not be able to participate in life the way that we feel like we should, but we're stuck with it. It might be a mental disability, a lifetime of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Maybe it's a phobia that we're tied to. We have no control over it. It controls us. Or maybe... It's an addiction that we're tied to. Maybe it's an alcoholism or a drug addiction or a food addiction. Or maybe it's a really unwholesome addiction that we can't even tell other people about. But it's that monkey on our back and we can't get that thing off and we're tied to it. It eats at us. The Buddha recognized this and he said, this is suffering. Sixth, the pain of being separated from what we love, the pain of grief, the pain of separation and the pain of attachment. N nothing can be worse than a parent losing a child. Nothing. The pain of losing a parent, the pain of losing our spouse, our life's partner, the pain of losing our partner, the person that we've our roots are so intertwined with this person that we, if we take that root out, the other root's going to come out. We know this. It could be our job, our position, our status. 
we're deeply attached to it and we're forced to being, maybe it's our home, our belongings, maybe it's our money that we're being separated from. All of a sudden it's like, wait, who am I now? Who am I? All this causes pain, fear, and, and deep anxiety. The problem is separation is inevitable because no matter what, we come into this world alone and baby, we're going to leave it alone too. And we're like sticks coming down a stream. The sticks meet for a while and eventually a stream separates us. Maybe we're together for a while, not forever. No matter what that other stick is, whatever we cling to inevitably goes away and that is painful. So these are the six points of our first noble truth, the truth of suffering. And now we can move on to the second one, which is the truth of the origin of suffering. The origin of the suffering, as any good Vedasas will tell you, is ignorance, spiritual ignorance. Spiritual ignorance leads to desire, or what the Buddha called in Pali, tanha. It's greed, it's craving, this craving and desire. It's that selfish, egotistic desire that wants us, that has us wanting something, but we want it just for ourselves, nobody else. It increases our egotism, it increases our attachment to ourselves, and it increases our sense of being separated from everybody else. It's a very painful situation. You see, because the Buddha taught that all life is one. So when we have that kind of craving, we make it more painful for ourselves because we say, I am different, I deserve more, I want more than others. And he also taught that we have to see all beings as simply extensions of ourselves. So how can you not want to share with others? As the Holy Mother said, no one is a stranger, my child, the whole world is your own. So this lets us now move on to the third noble truth, which finally brings us some good news. Okay, good. The end of suffering. Suffering can be overcome. And then we move right into the fourth noble truth. Whew, got there. Where we have the best news, the path to the end of suffering. And the path to the end of suffering is the eightfold path. Here we go with this very organized analytical list of what we need to do. So here, the Buddha is our spiritual doctor, and he says, yes, 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 I've diagnosed. You have suffering, you have pain, that's a terrible thing. Yeah, I write, I write this out, I write out the prescription. You follow it, promise, you're okay, and you'll be fine. Follow the orders, follow the rules on this prescription pad, and there will be the end of suffering. So, the first fold in this eightfold path, right view. So, you know, unless we think and understand, we won't be able to follow through. So we need to reason carefully, think carefully, analyze carefully about why we need to change our approach to life. Why what we've been doing for has not been working so well for us. And we need to change it. Because with the right view, with the right understanding, we can follow through with everything else. Unless we understand it well, we can't follow through because we're not thinking right. The second one is right intent. Because the first one, the right view, kind of, it, it, it gets our mind going. It, it works through the mind. The second one works through our heart. It's like, okay, we have to ask ourselves, what do I really want in life? What am I doing? 
am, am I being sincere? Am I being really honest with myself? Is, are my heart and my lips being the same? Am I being sincere in what I'm doing here? Then we go on to third right speech. There's an ancient Vedic prayer that you hear here hear, hear pretty often. May my speech be one with my mind, and may my mind be one with my speech. O thou self-luminous Brahman, reveal thyself to me. And it says, may I speak the truth, and may it protect me. We have to be truthful to ourselves, first of all, and truthful to everybody else. It's really, really important. Truthfulness is absolutely as necessary as compassion, and they have to go together because we can't say, oh, I'm just being truthful and have that being an excuse for expressing some hostility or, or trying to wound person another person in some way. They have to go together. And it also means that right speeches, that we have to examine the motives behind whatever we've said. What was the reason for, for me saying that? Am I saying this for the right reasons? Am I being honest and am I being compassionate? The fourth is right conduct. Ethics is absolutely imperative. Just like in the Hindu tradition, we have the yamas and the niyamas. The Buddha said it's really important to have these ethical precepts, and he gives five. The first, number one, don't kill. Okay, that's okay. Second, don't steal. Got it. Third, don't lie. Makes sense. Fourth, don't be unchaste. By that he means the unmarried practice celibacy and the married or those in committed relationships remain completely faithful to their spouse. No wiggle room on that. Okay, got that. Fifth, don't take intoxicants. Whoa, wait a minute. That was the first four more were doable. What about the fifth? Come on. Why should we not have intoxicants? Why? Because when we become intoxicated, we lose control over our mind. We lose control over our will. And when that happens, we say things, we do things that we could very well regret the rest of our lives. We can end up doing things that, um, that we may never be able to repair. And more than that, we have to sort of get used to being the owners of our mind to being in charge of our mind, to have we be the directors of our mind rather than the mind being allowing us to be whipped around by it. That's why he says that. So right conduct also means examining our own actions. Why did I do that? Did I do it for the right reason? Or did I do it because I'm expecting some praise? Or am I trying to get some benefit? Some benefit out of this. Am I, getting, am I looking for a reward? So we have to make sure that our actions are really fueled by the right motives. Fifth, right livelihood. You know, there are some professions that are just incompatible with spiritual life. We have to just face it. If you want a spiritual life, you can't be an arms trader. You can't be a prostitute or a john. You can't sell drugs to drug addicts. You can't sell drugs to anybody. You can't sell alcoholic, alcohol to alcoholics. You can't feed people's misery. You can't make your living by deceiving other people. You can't make your living by wounding other people. And if you're in a position where your boss said, makes you 
lie, cheat, and steal, or in some other way sell your ethics down the drain, then get out of that job. Because it's much better to find another job than to not being able to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and think, oh my God, I feel so bad about doing that. Get another job. It ain't worth it. Sixth, right effort. Real spiritual life takes some real effort. We have to engage the will. The will is really necessary. And the Buddha was a really great advocate of using the strength of our will. He, he said, work out your own salvation. Like, put, put your shoulder to the wheel sort of thing. We All of us have a strong will. We just don't use it very often. And when we do, it's often for the wrong reasons, whether it's to lose, you know, lose some weight or to make sure we get enough exercise. But we really need it. If we're going to be a success in our spiritual life, we have to have our will engaged. We really have to use that or else we can't attain enlightenment because we're going against the current. We need to use our will. Our efforts have to be slow, steady, and sincere because as the Buddha taught, the strings of a lute can't be tuned too tight because they break and they can't be too lax or else you don't get a sound. Again, this middle path. In the Dhammapada, the collection of the Buddha's sayings. The first, it starts with these words. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. Our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. Suffering follows unwholesome thought as the wheels of a cart follow the oxen that draw it. Joy follows wholesome thought like a shadow that never leaves. Which is why the seventh fold of our eightfold path is right mindfulness. The Buddha really stressed self-examination. He really kept saying, look at our own minds. Are we going in the right direction? Are our thoughts going in the right direction? Are they going towards unselfishness or towards self-centeredness? Are we going towards more, are we going towards the goal of enlightenment and freedom or are we, by these thoughts, are we just getting ourselves deeper and deeper into samsara and giving ourselves more suffering? Which puts us into the eighth, eighth fold of our eightfold path, right concentration. You know, it's really hard to meditate. No news there. If it's easy for you, either you're enlightened or you're doing it wrong. The, the thing is, we can't do the eighth step, this right concentration, until we do the first seven steps first. Because otherwise, it's trying to meditate in a tornado or, or, or in the middle of when you're outside or, or, or swim in a tsunami. We have to have the purity of mind that brings us that tranquility and peace and contentment and deep inner quietness that will allow us to concentrate. Otherwise, we're just playing a tug of war with our own minds. We're not meditating, which in Sanskrit is called dhyana. That dhyana is to be completely fixed on a single object to have our entire attention completely absorbed in our object of meditation. And that can only come when the first seven steps have been followed here. So when that has been done, then we can experience, like the Buddha did, that joy and peace and that tranquility of our own inner nature. It's there 
available for us, but because of our own inner turmoil, we can't experience it. So this eightfold path gets us there. Now these these four noble truths are, are good for any spiritual practitioner of any spiritual path in any tradition. They're really they're really good for everybody. And the better we can do these, the more we are freed from what the Buddha called the three poisons. The poisons of ignorance, craving, and aversion. And the more we're freed from these poisons, the more joyful and tranquil and, and just happy we're going to be. You know, the Buddha went outside the palace and he saw old age, sickness, and death. And he was deeply moved by compassion. We see it all the time and we just shine it on. We pretend it's not there. Or we say, well, it's not my time yet. But he had an active compassion. He was concerned about the sufferings of all beings, every being. He didn't, wasn't concerned about his own personal welfare or that of his kingdom or that of his family or of his country or of his you know, race or, or even of his own species. He had a deep, profound compassion for all beings, all beings. So let's all try to expand our own boundaries. Let's not just our own personal welfare, our own personal health, our own personal happiness, our own personal strength, but that of all beings, no matter who they are, no matter what they are, no matter what political party, no matter where they live on this earth, no matter who they are, whether they agree with us or not, whether we know them or not, because we're all interconnected and interrelated and our happiness and our tranquility are absolutely utterly dependent on the happiness and the health and the tranquility of all beings. And if there's nothing else that we've learned from the COVID crisis, it should be this, the health, happiness, and well-being of all beings affects the happiness and well-being of us all. Please let's move past our petty transitory differences so that we can all get through this together. What else, what else are we doing here? What else are we doing? You know, this virus of COVID will go away. No question about it. We will conquer this like we've conquered everything else. But what about the virus of selfishness, of egotism, unkindness, greed, anger, hatred? What about those viruses? You know, to take care of that in our lives, we don't need the CDC. We don't need Washington, D.C., we don't need anybody but ourselves, our own will. We have to take responsibility for ourselves, for our thoughts and our own actions, for our own lives. And we have to try to do what we can to make our presence in the world not a burden, but a blessing for the world. And I'll conclude with Buddha's three treasures. Buddham Sharnam Gachami, Dharmam Sharnam Gachami, Sangam Sharanam Gachami. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.